Hey listeners, do you enjoy movies? So do we. And that's why we record Nerds on Film, our weekly podcast where it's just us sitting around making jokes and talking movies. In fact, if you guys have not subscribed to that already, you really should. I'll wait. Have you done it yet? You haven't? What is wrong with you? You're super lazy, right? Jeez, we made it really easy. You just go to nerdonomy.com and you click the freaking iTunes button. Stop procrastinating, get off your lazy ass, and go do it. Thank you. Uh, hey, Eric. Kevin, this is not Nerds on Film. What are you doing? This is not the recording night for that. I know, I know. Well, I actually, I came to tell you um, from Brian that he won't be able to make tonight's recording, and what? he does extend his sincerest apologies. In fact, he wanted me to let you know that uh, that All Saints Day episode you guys wanted to do, yeah. he wants you guys to postpone it for now um, because he won some sort of contest, and uh, now he's at the Vatican. Wait, you're trying to tell me he won tickets to the Vatican? Mm-hmm, Yeah. How do you win tickets to the Vatican? God only knows. Huh. All right. Well, that's fine. I mean, yeah. I, I'd love to record it with you. Well, thank I, you. I guess yeah. we should go online then and try and figure out what we're going to do for this episode, because obviously all the research I've done is kind of pointless <sighs> well, at this point. That's but. a bummer. Well, That's all right. Let, let, let's go online. Let's see if there's anything in the news that might inspire us. Okay. Hold on a sec. Huh. Check out this article on this website. Yeah, that looks interesting. I'm going to click on that. Wow. Look at that. Whoa. Read that title. American arrested in Vatican for falling into Pope's man cave. Wow, a man cave. Who knew the Pope had a man cave? Wow, that's... Hold on, let me scroll down a little bit. Oh, check this out. The American, age 28, was arrested Monday morning in the Vatican. He had been found wandering around in the attic, reportedly looking for relics from saints from across Europe, when he had come across a weak spot in the ceiling and fallen into Pope Francis's man cave. Wow. And the wow. article, it, it goes on. It says that Pope Francis had an affinity for this show called Golden Girls because that was the only show he watched as a kid. Huh. And it looks like in this man cave, or what's commonly referred to as the Pope Cave in Inner Circles, he recreated the entire set and actually got costumes and props from the actual show. Yeah, the American apparently fell into B. Arthur's dress. Completely oh, destroyed it, completely ruined it, but it, it broke his fall and saved his life. Oh, oh my well, God. That's good to hear. But hey, check it out. They actually let photographers down into that uh, Pope cave. Wow, there's the whole set. Wow. That's really accurate. I think Sean would like really appreciate that. Yeah, I bet he would. It's so detailed. Those look like little tiny cigarette butts that even have... Whoa. That's Betty White's lipstick. That's Betty White's lipstick. I would know it from anywhere. Wow. Man. Oh, look at the end of the article. The American has been taken into Vatican custody where he will remain for an undetermined amount of time. Apparently, there's no effort being made to extradite oh, him back no. to America. That's terrible. That sucks. Bummer. Want to do the show? Yeah, let's get started. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am standing in for Brian Moriarty as... Kevin Satorius. That's right. He's not actually Kevin Satorius. He's, no. he's pretending to be Kevin Satorius, who's standing in for Brian Moriarty. That's correct. Uh, That's right. I'm actually an Android. Uh, the newest uh, operating system is called um, Oil Squeak. Uh, it's only for the robots. Unfortunately, this does not uh, cross-platform over to the Android phones. Oh. It is what it is. I mean, yeah. with Open my, my ass. vocabulary, speaking, ability. Oh, great. And now it's broken. As it, Perfect. As it, as it, Oh, sorry. Uh, that was weird. I kind of crashed on myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're being ridiculous. A little bit. 
Kevin, the real Kevin Satorius, how are you? I am I'm quite real and alive. Um, I'm Good. doing quite well. I had a blast. Uh, Three-day weekend uh, that actually was kick-started at your Halloween party. Yeah. Listeners, if you uh, follow the Twitter page, if you're on the Facebook page, you've already seen uh, some pretty cool photos from the party. We'll put some more up. They're on my camera right now, and as you can hear my voice... I'm still kind of getting over being sick, so haven't had an opportunity to upload those just yet. However, if you go there now, you can see me, of course, as uh, Albert Einstein, which was, I gotta say, I think it was good. It's the best costume I've done in a long time. It was really good. I I even shaved for it, which I do not. No, you do do not do normally. And I'm telling you, with the lack of beard, your face is very blinding right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's cold. Uh, I can imagine. It's cold and uncomfortable. You can feel drafts and stuff like that. That's how I felt when I shaved my head for the first time. Is that it? Just I got cold really quick. Yeah, it's not good. Uh, You can also, of course, see Kevin as a hipster Vader. That's right. Uh, Originally, I was going to be a grown-up Calvin uh, from Calvin and Hobbes, and I had like 12 hours to find a stuffed tiger, but I went shopping to do some regular groceries uh, at Costco, and sure enough, they had a Darth Vader helmet, and I'm like, oh, that's good. I remember when I used to have one of those. And then two seconds goes by, and lightning flash of an idea. I'm like, I know what I'm doing. And so at a moment's notice, I changed my costume idea. And sure enough, I ended up winning by one vote. Best single costume at your party. <laughs> I know. And it was great. Oh, man. Yeah. I have to say, you definitely win for originality. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I usually go with the flow when it comes to Halloween. Like, I find something that's, uh, like, in pop culture and just make a costume out of it. But this was the first year where I actually did something original. And I'll tell you, um, for our listeners that haven't seen the pictures, I went all out. I had the plaid shirt. I had the dark blue jeans that with the rolled-up cuffs and Chuck Taylors. Uh, Darth Vader had some nerd black frame glasses on his face, along with a pack of American Indian cigarettes. And uh, I even went out and bought a 24-ounce can of Pabst Blue Ribbon, which, for those that don't live in uh, California or in the country of the United States of America, that is the purest definition of what a hipster looks like. Minus the Darth Vader helmet. <laughs> you even have the green Yoda lightsaber instead That's of the right. red lightsaber. Do you, you know, know why? What? Red is so mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I loved how as soon as I was getting, um, you, were, you were giving me my prize, uh, I, I was trying to find a way for you to say, make a speech. And so I, that's why I asked you, can I make a speech? And like, hey, hey, he has a speech. And I'm like, whatever, and just walked away. And I loved how everyone laughed. I was like, I was channeling the hipster in me. That's what happens when you live for a couple years in Santa Cruz. Yeah, you channeled the hipster as well as the force. That's right. It was fantastic. It was. And so was uh, Martha's uh, costume as well. As, oh, yeah. as the chalkboard to your Einstein. Yeah. <laughs> and the very nerdy equations that made no sense sense but all involved you and your kids and love it was adorable well thank you it was kind of a last minute thing and i was looking around the house and i was like well martha didn't know what she was going to go as because she she didn't have time to put a costume together and she's like well maybe i'll be a zombie or a vampire and i'm like hold on a second and i was going through my my shirts and i found this old green shirt and it was kind of raggedy a little bit and it looked just like a chalkboard like a used up chalkboard and i grabbed uh some of the kids sidewalk chalk and just kind of wrote on it again Stroke of genius. It was it was it pun was intended on that one. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, wow, we had a great weekend. Yeah. Um, listeners, don't worry, Brian is fine. Brian yeah. has not actually <laughs> been arrested. No, there's no way that he went to the Vatican on a moment's notice. I'm pretty sure Pope Francis probably has never seen the Golden Girls, nor has watched television as a child. No, he was probably I'm, I'm sure in like seminary watched. school 
practicing uh, being a good Catholic and things like that. I don't know. I'm sure I watch TV, but obviously Maybe. the Pope would never spend money on memorabilia or anything. Nor creating a lifelike set of the Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Although I wouldn't put it past people giving him gifts if he really was a big fan of the Golden Girls. Very true. So However, I, don't, I don't know. Can the Pope accept gifts? I probably, think so. As long as it's like, if it's monetary, it goes straight to the Vatican in terms of like restoration and stuff. But I would imagine if it was like a personalized gift, like a woman who has not seen for 40 years, but learned how to embroider and embroiders like, I love you, Pope. I'm pretty sure the Pope would not turn that down. Or I love you, Golden Girls. There you go. <laughs> and then you add it into the collection. However, I would be shocked. And actually, I will say this legitimately appalled if there is not a Pope cave somewhere in the Vatican. There's got to be. There's got to be. Maybe yeah. it's just got a lot of really great like relics from the Christian world oh, or yeah. something. But yeah, and that then would like be cool a velvet a red couch, uh, like a velvet carpet as well. Very lush and like kind of like a comforting museum at the same time. I think we're going to hell. No, no, yeah. that's not blasphemy. I'm sure if Brian was here right now. He'd be. <laughs> he I'm just waiting for him happy. to open the door, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> he flew back from Connecticut just yep. to yell at us. Yeah, probably. Uh, no, Brian will be back next week. Uh, he is visiting family. He had a excellent closing of Les Mis, and uh, you know he worked hard all month long, as did I, to bring two a, months. Yeah, two well, two months with well, Tech Week and then the show. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, what I was going to say is that he worked hard. So did I to do the whole month of Halloween, mm-hmm. which our listeners have just been in love with. Me as well, dude. Trust me. Those were some solid episodes. Yeah, it was great. We had a really great time. And I'll, we'll get to listener feedback in a minute, and I'll share some of your comments with us. But, um, you know, he deserved it. He deserved to have a break, and he's out yeah. there on a little bit of a vacation. And uh, there A much-needed vacation, I can imagine. Uh, I used to be in theater myself in high school, and... Me being in high school, I never got a break. <laughs> Even after we did a show and like we would finish by like 1, 2 a.m. and then go to school the next day. And Yeah, good for you, Brian. I'm glad that you're on vacation, man. All you right. deserve it. Yes, he does. Uh, shall we get to uh, listener feedback? That sounds great. This week in listener feedback. All right. Uh, this one comes from Kathy. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit because Kathy's got... Uh, Lots of good stuff to say. But she says in her first paragraph, I wanted to write and say that I love both of your shows and listen to them all the time at work. Uh, They help me get through the mind-numbing boredom of my job. My fiancé is also a huge fan and the one who introduced me to your podcast. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you, fiancé of Kathy and Kathy as well. Uh, She said that she just wanted to point out a couple of things from our Capitalism Laced with Ergot episode, which she enjoyed. Um, The term warlock, which I think I mentioned, so my bad, uh, as a male witch is not accurate. Uh, In fact, warlock is actually considered to be kind of, I guess you'd say like derogatory. It's not considered nice. It actually means oath breaker or traitor, which I did not know. And of course, I did not mean to um, bestow any dire insult onto anybody and i don't think i did but again i'll just say it out there didn't mean to do that yeah she also goes on to say uh some views and opinions uh around circumcision with our uh, don't get snippy with the episode (laughs) (laughs) and uh she well i had mentioned in the episode that there are health benefits to having a circumcision performed I, i remember the episode very well and, uh, you know, she does acknowledge that um, there's quite a bit of conversation around that and around health benefits, but she is of the opinion that uh, there's not quite as much evidence to suggest that, that there's huh. little evidence to suggest it. Interesting. And she goes on to provide some actually really interesting articles in here, um, which I can't really have time to go into. There's a lot of good stuff. And Kathy, thank you for, for writing in. I know that there's always two sides to every story. And while I'm still kind of a proponent of, uh, of circumcision, uh, if 
whomever is out there chooses not to do that for their child, that is absolutely your decision. You are a parent. I trust you to do what's right for your kids, and I'm not going to judge you for whatever decisions you make. (laughs) Um, She says, other than that, you guys have been doing a great job, and keep up the interesting and entertaining work. So thank you so much. And it looks like we have uh, two more pieces of uh, Nerds on History feedback, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's go for it. This one is from Lindsay. Uh, It was a very short email, but she says, uh, I love it. Hi, guys. I listened to several podcasts, including Stuff You Missed in History Class. This is by far my favorite. New episodes are the highlight of my workday and help me make it through the day. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Lindsay. Yes, that thank is you. awesome. And then it looks like we got one more from uh, Andrea. Uh, Andrea wrote a really nice email to, uh, to us and especially to you and Brian, uh, Eric. Uh, through the email, I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit. She was searching for a podcast at work and and for travel, and she doesn't remember the exact episode, but she was immediately hooked as soon as you and Brian jump into the TARDIS. (laughs) And as she quickly progressed through Nerds on Film, she found herself laughing out loud a lot and uh, was actually, it looks like, in tears as well. Um, She's a Nerdonomy junkie, which is awesome. (laughs) She doesn't overdose on our podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) And she has this great idea for a crossover podcast for the future, um, all things Holy Grail. And uh, it may be a bit of a ploy to have the Nerds on Film crew do a Monty Python quotes the entire episode. Um, Beyond Monty Python, you have the Da Vinci Code, Indiana Jones, and the Last Crusade. Absolutely good references. Uh, In addition to movies I'm sure you could find. And then there's the historical aspect of the Grail that the movies are loosely based on and would be great to learn more about. Plus, Brian could go all in quotes catholic without fear of retribution or need to apologize (laughs) you know my favorite part of this email Hmm. is the very last paragraph says well that's it my big idea and assuming you are not above bribery i have made a small donation to the hot pocket slash snuggie fund in hopes you will entertain so (laughs) we get to eat again (laughs) yay and And stay warm warm. (laughs) (laughs) um andrea thank you so so very much what a very, very kind and generous donation from yes. you as well. We really appreciate that. That's helping us, as we've said many times on the podcast before, pay off some equipment that we still have some uh, outstanding amounts on, uh, <laughs> complete that ceiling, and, uh, of course, feed us with Hot Pockets and keep us warm with Snuggies. Yes. So, uh, fantastic. And one last thing I want to mention before we move on to our last piece of yeah, listener sure. feedback. You know what? Uh, it turns out that Andrea had actually sent us a piece of listener feedback before, and for some reason, somehow, it got lost in the ether. And again, I apologize for that. So, uh, this is your your big shout-out. And again, Absolutely. we apologize for not reading your first one. We've just read your other one, and we love you dearly. Yes, yeah, that, that second email is amazing. Thank you, Andrea. Yes. Uh, our last piece comes from John. John left this on our Facebook page, and he says, Hey, guys, I'm a big fan of both of your shows. I listened to your most recent Halloween podcast on monsters throughout history. Now, you guys did talk about Swamp Monsters, but you guys didn't m- mention Swamp Thing. I just wanted to bring that one up. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. Wow, good catch, John. Good catch. I'm going to let Brian take that one because uh, he was doing the Swamp Creatures last time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait <laughs> until he comes back. And I'm going to let him address the, the Swamp thing. Uh, hopefully it doesn't turn into a gate, like Swamp Gate yeah. or something like that. I don't think it will. John seems he's very happy with the episode. But yeah, I'll let, uh, I'll let Brian address that one when he gets back. Sounds like a plan. John, thank you so much for, your, for listening. And we really, really appreciate your comment on the Facebook. Uh, that's all I got. That's all I got. All right, cool. Let's uh, let's do this then. Let's All get right. on with this episode because we had 
actually a little bit of a tie-in in our cold open. A little bit. We're not talking about All Saints. We're going to do that when Brian gets back. We're not talking about the Pope's fascination with the Golden Girls, because we Nor don't know if that's real. Nor the Pope Cave. Nor the Pope Cave. What are we talking about today? The internet. The internet. That's right. Internet. The, inter, the interweb. The World Wide Web. The hypertext protocol. <laughs> <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> and it's actually something that's a little more modern in our history, right? It's it's hasn't been it's, around for very long. No, no. It's well, in terms of what we're used to, it's about as old as you and I. Yeah, in but, terms of like the World Wide Web. Yes, the World Wide Web specifically, but the history of the internet is actually Ooh, it's getting close to 50 years. Uh, a little more than that now, right? A little more. Because if you consider oh, yeah. the first seeds were kind of planted in 1957, yeah. and you could even technically say that those seeds were being uh, planted even as far back as the 1860s, right? Right. So if you talk about the telegraph and you talk about a digital distribution mm- method... A means of communication through a digital connection, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Then you're looking at the telegraph as really being that, that first precursor to that. Right. And the telegraph... You know, you think about it. I mean, we talked a little bit about this on a previous episode. Is really a very impressive. It's advanced for piece the time. Of technology. Yeah. yeah, that they were able to create a language through little like beeps, little sounds, and transmit data that way. Yeah, little dashes and dots and yeah. tones that were used to to transfer that information. It, you know, you go back in those times, and you even had kind of um, a parallel to what we have going on in our modern information age, right? You had. Obviously, people meeting each other and falling in love over telegraph. There's stories of that. There's people who have gotten married over the telegraph <laughs> before. There are those who hired private security for telegraphs to make sure that the information was safe and secure, yep. that people weren't stealing yep. uh, particularly financial information. That's more or less what we do these days with our modern communication yeah, system. pretty much. So that, that, that's actually pretty incredible. But it would take a little while before it would evolve to a point where everybody was accessible to it. You know, to the point where you can literally have it in your pocket. The internet, the instant communication ability with anyone on this planet just inches away from, or, or millimeters away from your skin, yeah. or less than that, right? Just the layer of, of you know, denim or... Underwear. Or underwear, or whatever <laughs> that separates it, right? So that is a pretty impressive and incredible story. Yeah. And it begins really in the 1950s, in the late 1950s. Yep. And we can thank the Russians... I think, for helping to kind of spur along of this, yeah. this whole revolution. And um, I, I think we should also give a shout out to UCLA and uh, Stanford as well. It looks like they kind of helped prepare the networking of the internet as well. Like oh, they absolutely. Had, they had a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They had a, a important and small contribution to the the evolution of the internet and to what it is today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, spurring all that along, though, with uh, with the Russian launch of Sputnik, yeah, you know, really got the world's attention that technology was now evolving. It was changing. It was taking a dramatic leap forward after the Second World War. We had finally put a man-made object into space, a satellite that Something, was self-sufficient through you know little updates and stuff from ground control. Yeah, essentially, it could it could send primitive radio signals yeah. back to us, and we could receive them on ground. So we we had a method to do that. And that really scared the crap out of a lot of people, particularly in America, who saw the Soviet Russia of that time as a threat. Yeah. And that that spurred the whole development of entire organizations within the United States government to develop technology that would lead to eventually us landing on the on moon. On the moon, yeah. <laughs> what do you know? The space race kind of jump-started the internet. Yeah, it did in many ways. Yeah. 
And with that, you have the creation of many different organizations um, that were created to help get us into space, right? The most famous and notable, of course, is NASA. Uh, now, Naturally. Before NASA, though, you actually had DARPA taking over responsibility for those very first, you know, ba- experimentations. Yeah, <laughs> the first baby steps before we actually got into right. space. And it looks like um, when it comes to DARPA, there was a series of memos that were written by this gentleman, uh, J.C.R. Licklider. I'm going to try to my best to pronounce that correctly, from MIT. And uh, he had this idea, uh, this concept that he called a galactic network. Like, I just love the sound of that. <laughs> Me being the huge Star Wars fan that I am, it's kind of intimidating, but awesome at the same time. It is. It is. And, you know, he was an interesting character because he, he was actually a psychologist by trade. Hmm. And he was trying to use the computers of the time, of course, for their purpose, which was the storing and accessing of information for, for research. Um, his involvement in DARPA, which I should uh, clarify for those who don't know what it means, it's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Whew, that's a mouthful. That's why we call it DARPA. It's kind of like strategic... Uh, homeland intervention, uh, whatever Shield makes up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, well, these guys, you know, they were formed in 1958 to be uh, the catalyst for these great technologies and ideas, right? Like I said, they supported America's space endeavor before NASA was created, and with these ideas that you have um, being created around that first concept of the internet. You, you have it being born out of literally this guy's frustration. Uh, he was working on a series of computers, three different computers, and to access co- the computers of the time, which, let's just clarify, let's paint a picture for the computers <laughs> in the 1960s. These were not your laptop PCs, these were not your home desktops. These were computers that filled buildings. Yeah. Not they, rooms, buildings. Yeah, I mean, they, they were absolutely massive. Yeah. Some of them could be a little bit smaller, some of them, you know, could could take up, like you said, like a, what you would consider to be like an entire warehouse area, yeah. right? Like computers that would fill up Costco warehouses. Yeah. yeah. And the computers that were just before this even were even more primitive. So like oh, yeah. the 1950s, the ones that my, my grandfather were working with, uh, used a simple punch card system. You put in your program, which you did by perforating pieces of paper, and then you, you created a program, you fed it into the computer, and you waited like a day to get your results. <laughs> These computers that had taken uh, a much more digital approach to it yeah. allowed you to access the actual computer from a terminal. And instead of having to create punch cards, you were actually able to use a keyboard interface mm-hmm. to put in the information. And instead of waiting an entire day, you waited a couple L- seconds. More and, instantaneous. Yeah, yeah, you got the information back to And you. for those that don't understand what a terminal is when it comes to computer terminology, Eric, what would you uh, describe a terminal? Well, you have the, the primary computer is the mainframe, right? This is the machine that does all of the computating. Yeah. And the terminal is just the way that you access it. Yeah. So it has a, a visual interface uh, accompanying, yeah, yeah, a screen accompanying a Keyboard. keyboard. And, and at this time, there was no mice, no, no trackpads, nothing. It was no, all key, key like a- algorithms and stuff that you had to type. Right. No, There's, no graphic interface that right. wouldn't come about until the eighties. Yeah. So it was a very different world than we see today. But the problem was, and you can imagine these how how difficult it would be to work with equipment like that. Yeah. Well, uh, JCR Licklider had three computers that he needed to work with, so he was having to stop work on one terminal, get up go to a whole other section of the building, sit down, log into that terminal, get the information he needed from there, get up, go to a whole other section of the building, and go to the other computer, and he thought, this is stupid. There must have been, like, almost days that he would have to wait for results, because these are computers that, you know, the processing speed, in our terms, 
is kind of like uh, ne- Neanderthal levels. Like it's just very slow moving, very archaic when you compare, you know, the power of a smartphone in your pocket. Yeah. So, you know, I can understand his frustration. Oh, yeah. I can understand his desire to want to create something more. But, I mean, more. he got a lot of exercise compared to people <laughs> this day and age. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Imagine if... Imagine this. Imagine that you work in a uh, an office place that's got multiple floors on it, okay? If you want to check your email, you have to go down to floor one. Now, if you want to send uh, a file to somebody, okay, you have to go up to floor two and then log in on that computer there. And then if you want to just, I don't know, browse the internet on your lunch break, you have to go up to the third floor to do it. Yeah. That would not fly these days. No. That's no. not going to happen. There's no patience for it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So throughout 1960 and 1962, Licklider was well known for writing a series of papers where he talked about these fundamentals and ideas of networking computers. He thought it was just ridiculous. Why can't we take computers that are in the same area or even computers that are great distances apart from one another and get them to communicate with each other? Yeah. Well, it sounds easy. It's not an easy process at all uh, to, to make that all work, but it is something that in the 1960s, they had the knowledge to do, and it just took the time and the effort, and it took several different um, individuals and several different universities, really, who wanted to make this a reality, who wanted to be able to share the information that they had stored in their computers and be able to access it from a distance, or even just in the same building. But it was something that, uh, that they were able to accomplish. So ARPANET, which was essentially this attempt to bring these computers that were at ARPA and have them connect with just one another, started its planning in around 1966. Uh, It wouldn't be until 1969 that that actually came together. And um, you find that Licklider, you know, he started the process, but he wasn't the one who really moved it forward. Uh, It was multiple individuals from that point on, from MIT, from uh, the University of Santa Monica, uh, University of California, Berkeley, uh, in addition, of course, to uh, Stanford, yep. who were able to to make this a reality, thanks in part to a whole new understanding of the way that we're sending information. Do you know what packet switching is? It's when you get a TPS report, and once it's filed, you're handed a new packet, and you have to file a new TPS report? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love Office Space, one of the greatest movies <laughs> ever created. There's a gentleman by the name of uh, Leonard Klenrock, and Leonard Klenrock, who's from MIT, back in the 1960s, wanted to cre- help create a system by which to send information in a fashion that no matter what kind of interference it had, it was going to actually get to the sender. Uh, and if you look at the other main type of technology that was used for communication at this time, you had two options. What, what do you think those might be? Let me guess. That's uh, the U.S. mail, physical. I'm going to say outside of that. Oh, outside of that? Uh, yeah. The telephone? Telephone is one. Yep. I don't know what the second one would be. Radio. So radio and telephone, those were our two primary forms of communication. And not just our form of communication in our personal lives, but the United States government, right? Yeah. And being that this was the 1960s and 1950s, people were really concerned about the nuclear threat, about a bomb going off and disrupting everything in America. And there's kind of a myth associated with the idea that the internet was created because of this. It was actually just a thought and idea that had been kind of around. It's been ruminating um, for years at that point. Yeah, yeah it did not directly influence Leonard Klen, uh, Rock's actual research into the mathematical algorithm that made this possible. But it was something that uh, was in the people's minds that how would you get information from one place to the other if your circuit was cut out like it would be in a telephone? You know, you had to connect that circuit to make those two work. If you didn't have the circuit, phone didn't work. 
or with radio waves, if they were being disrupted by an actual nuclear explosion, some side of um, some sort of ionic interference that would be created in the atmosphere as a result of that, what would you be left with? You wouldn't really have much to go with, right? So they came other up with than this, person to person, right? Exactly, which is just not going to work unless you believe in those awful movies like The Postman. Which, <laughs> oh, Kevin Costner, why, why? Flashback, Ugh. feeling bad now anyway moving on you had to kind of create a, a series of circuits that would kind of bring things together if you will and if you kind of imagine like a fishnet and you imagine on one side you have a computer that can send a signal and you have the other side that can send a signal and they're connected by this fishnet it's got all of these different pathways that it can take yep so with packet switching what you actually do is you take a file and you cut it up into smaller parts uh, much smaller pieces of information and you send them out across that whole web and one way or another, all of them are eventually going to get back. Even if one of those little passageways that it would travel upon, one of those paths is disrupted, it has all these other ways that it can take. And he created this mathematical algorithm for breaking up those files and then safely getting them to their location and bringing them back together. Wow. And this allowed essentially what people want to do, which was that sending of the information across a great distance without it being disrupted and allowing it to be recreated on the receiving end. Yeah, and and I would imagine that it would be, like it is today, really efficient to send uh, bits and pieces of a file because it's much like smaller in terms of uh, storage size. And so I'm impressed that in the 60s, they were able to write a uh, program to stitch it all together. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty fantastic. Um, you'll find that uh, Tommy Crash and Paul Bran, who had a U.S. military contract essentially to to bring this to a practical use within the united states military allowed for it to kind of further be uh, further come into existence right and uh, arpanet would would utilize that in bringing these systems to to connect with each other for the first time yeah um there was a interesting uh quote i found um about arpanet and on october 29th uh, 1969 about the first connection did you get to see this yes i did um this of course is led by bob taylor right who took over arpanet's efforts to go ahead and create this networking system yep. uh and i love the very first thing that was sent yeah um they also brought in another uh, person his name is larry roberts from mit to build the network and at 11:30 or no it looks like 10:30 at night <laughs> they set up a telephone connection between them and Stanford. And mind SRI. you, this was on October 29th, yes. 1969, which was actually not too far away from where we're recording this podcast right now. That's right. And it looks like uh, Kleinrock is quoted from an interview saying that we typed the L and asked on the phone, Hey guys, do you see the L? Yes, we see the L, came the response. And then we typed the O and asked, do you see the O? Yes, we see the O. Then we typed in the G. And the system crashed. <laughs> Yet a revolution had begun. Yeah, that, that's such a great quote. Yeah. Um, They're trying to type in the word log. <laughs> you know what they were trying to get to? What? Log in. Oh, of course, it would be log in. Yeah. That, that would have been the first complete word if the computer hadn't crashed. <laughs> Lo and behold, uh, they came up with low. <laughs> yeah. Well, they eventually added another computer to this network by the end of uh, 1969. Yeah. So you had, of course, we mentioned uh, University of California, Berkeley, Stanford. And University um, of Utah as well. And Santa Barbara and, yeah, and Utah, which brought those four computers into that first ever network. How is this the internet, though? Well, it, it, and on a very rudimentary and primary level, this was sending, uh, or this was communicating between multiple points of location, and they, as the quote says, uh, they were trying to send data. And so, as a means of communication and sending data, I would say on a very rudimentary uh, level, 
this was, I would say, the birth of the internet. Yeah, I mean, this is essentially what we do today, oh, yeah. but on a really, really small scale. Very. And it would just kind of continue to grow. You find that the funding for this, though, to make all this work was not coming from people like the telephone companies. They no. were not excited about this. Of course not. This is an idea that would probably cannibalize their business. Yeah. Why it, would they be interested? Exactly. And, it, you know, it was something that, based on you know the reports that I've heard, many people thought it was honestly just a joke. They thought that there was absolutely no way this would ever take off, this would ever catch on, that people would ever be interested in spending time, money, and effort into actually creating. And uh, they thought it would never get any further than these what are called lands right so you kind of hear that when you hear like um, a land like, like, yeah or a land party right yep. like gamers all get together and what That's they're right. doing is they're just interlinking their computers so they can play a game online well these guys were interlinking these four computers you know to create across the, the country yeah. or across half the country at least yeah. yeah so in that case it moves from like a lan to a wan which is a wide area network from a local area network yeah wow our nerds are really showing right now aren't they just a little bit <laughs> Let's dial it back. (laughs) (laughs) It just, it blows my mind, though, because if you think about the culture shock that that would have, obviously this was not available to a wide population at this time. And it wouldn't be for quite some time. No, but just the ramifications of doing this, the people who were involved in this project must have understood that they were laying the foundation for the future of all telecommunications. Oh, yeah. And they were getting no credit for it. That totally sucks. That seems to be like a common theme I'm noticing with the birth of an invention of something that is like monumental this day and age, uh, where, yes, we got this started, but we didn't get credit for it. (laughs) We were just beta testing. Oh, sorry, my nerd is showing. We were just trying it out. (laughs) And, you know, it's kind of sad, but at the same time, it also, these people, many of them, of which are still alive today, obviously, because we're not talking about that long of a distance of time but now we're able to finally acknowledge their work and and give them the praise that they deserve and but obviously arpanet was not by any means the only folks who were working on this there were projects like this going on around the world in the united kingdom in france uh in sweden they were playing london yeah yeah they were going all over the place and the idea instantly caught on and in the united states you know just a couple years later after this first experiment uh you had about 18 different computers now connected and sharing information across the United States. You know, as far away as the East Coast and the West Coast connecting with each other almost instantaneously. That was pretty incredible. And it got to the point where eventually they would actually have to get the phone companies to assist them. Uh, And they invented a whole new uh, method by which this information could travel over the phone lines. Because keep in mind, obviously, the phones were just being used for verbal communication at this point. So now they were buying time and buying equipment Um, or renting equipment, I should say, from the phone companies and had to create a whole new kind of protocol for information to be sent over um, phone lines. And this was uh, X.26, or X.25, excuse me, which would be the the precursor to that lovely sound we all remember from our modems in the early 90s, the... Yeah, exactly like that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... Now we've got this great foundation, but there were a lot of limitations at the time, right? Oh, yeah. Particularly in the method of which these computers were communicating with each other, because you had a problem. You could send something, but you didn't know immediately if it had been received. And if there was a problem with it, you didn't know where that problem was. And it was a really frustrating experience for people who were working on these early computers trying to make all this work, Uh, because they were using the NCP protocol, which would you know, more often than not, get it there, 
but you had no way of really kind of confirming that the the, the package in this case yeah. what we're talking about right is is data so files that are being sent and shared communication in terms of of text right so the first emails believe it or not were being sent in 1965 that was the first time huh. that that email had been experimented with and later in 1972 the first time that you see uh, an at being used in an email oh. yeah it's really interesting at was used to differentiate between whether or not it was being sent to a person or being sent to a computer wow that's so simple yeah and that's now it's just kind of been ingrained into uh how we how we use email addresses today right but uh you know it was or a simple or twitter <laughs> oh god yes or twitter um but you know something quite simple like that would have those lasting repercussions much later on yeah uh, but eventually, this whole protocol had to evolve, and it had to change. And with the advent of TCP/IP, which was a new form of protocol, new form of communication that not only confirmed that the message had been sent, but allowed it to communicate with pretty much anyone. Because these first computers, like the first time they were trying to network, the biggest problem they ran into was the fact that the computers didn't know how to talk to each other. They had to actually build secondary computers that yeah. had to be attached to the computer just to receive the incoming signals because all of those computers were designed the same so they understood the signals that were coming through. Right. Uh, they actually called these guys IMPs. <laughs> and uh, I know it's kind of a funny acronym. It stands for Interface Message Processors. Well, that makes sense. Right, IMPs. So these little IMPy guys were... <laughs> <laughs> they were designed, like I said, just to, to help facilitate that communication over the networks. So with the advent of TCP IP, you actually created kind of a universal language. Okay. Now this is something that all computers could communicate and share with. Their incoming signals, even if they were different, can now be understood. And it made that process of creating networks a lot easier. And that really kind of skyrocketed things, right? That really shot things forward. Because right. now you have the ability to create real easily, well, not really easily, but well, much more easily than yeah. before, uh, a, a unified network. Yeah, and then years later, it looks like on uh, January 1st, 1983, uh, the TCPIP protocols became the only approved protocol with the ARPANET, yeah. and it, which replaced uh, the predecessor, the NCP protocol. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of really interesting things going on right in around the 70s and 80s, Yeah, but more so in the earlier 70s, I'd say. But what I find fascinating is we finally have this infrastructure that works, it's good, and they just more or less stop it becomes stagnant yeah and it becomes adopted by a variety of different government organizations uh particularly associated with defense uh with commerce with all of these things that would we recognize the internet as today mm -hmm. but they really just kind of constrain themselves to these lands and wans and connect them together through this internet, but they're not really easily accessible. And they're really primarily only used by the government. You know, the government is or, renting... Yeah, or the universities and colleges. Yeah, yeah, th things that are Big more or less... institutions. Yeah, government-owned and controlled. And, and some companies like Hewlett-Packard were allowed to be on the internet because they were helping to move forward that technology. Yeah. But really... This was something that was not super accessible to individuals. No. That would change, though. Oh, well, when would that change happen there, Eric? Well, you'll find that um, by the late 1980s and early 1990s, the Internet had really evolved and become something that uh, around the world was now being worked on and, and supported. Uh, CERN had done some extremely important work in trying to make it as easy to access as possible, primarily for their own initial uses, right? But they saw the wider implications for, for what that would eventually make. 
Uh, and with that, you have the foundation of the World Wide Web, which we need to differentiate from the Internet. Let's get started then. You think of these things as being one thing, right? You think of them as being synonymous with each other. But the Internet is the method by which computers communicate with each other. But the World Wide Web is the way that we access the information that is on the Internet. It's kind of like an application for the Internet, if yeah. you will. Okay, that makes sense. Um, when it comes down to the World Wide Web, which is something that we're very used to this day and age, um, that's what, ladies and gentlemen, the WWW stands for when you type in a website. Usually you see HTTP colon slash slash and then followed by WWW. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, first little letters uh, at the beginning of a web address, uh, it's HTTP, which stands for Hypertext Protocol. Correct. And then those, uh, the colon and the slashes are used as a directional tool to send you to a specific part on the World Wide Web. Exactly, because you had all this information now. You had a bunch of computers that were connecting together, but how could you quickly and easily access the information and see it in a form that made sense? Right, which I think at this point, uh, we should begin talking about these things called web browsers. Yeah, well... I want to talk a little bit about Tim Berners-Lee, though, because he, oh, yes. he, he's worth certainly mentioning, because he is essentially the father of the World Wide Web. He is. You know, he was uh, working as a computer scientist uh, at CERN. He is uh, British by his uh, nationality. And um, when he was working for CERN, he, he created this concept and idea of quickly accessing the information from this, this type of web, right? He saw all these connections as being like a web, which is where he coined the phrase from. And he made it so that it was a read-only kind of situation. Because if you think about the other networks that were going on, you had to have permission to network with that computer. Right. Just like you would today. Like if I was going to set up some sort of file transfer between my computer and your computer, I have to have permission via like a password to do that. And all of those computers of the early internet had to have something set up like that. With the World Wide Web, you had information that was being hosted in that network on these kind of prototype servers, if you will, right? And you could access it if you knew what the, the link was that was set up to be kind of public-facing. Right. So he figured, this is so much easier. With that, I'm going to have to kind of design a tool that's going to allow me to connect with that. And that's when he kind of put together that first uh, web browser, one that was created right. to be purely uh, function and not so much aesthetics and like you would find with modern yeah. web browsers today. By the way, um, I just wanted to correct myself. Uh, HTTP... Specifically, I forgot one of the T's in the acronym. It's Hypertext Transfer Protocol. Oh, okay. Well, all right. Close enough. Very I mean, close. Yeah, I think we all know what you were talking about. Exactly. But no, it's, it's worth mentioning But that. that transfer is the key ingredient in terms of um, how signals were sent uh, using that web address. Like what we see on uh, packages and envelopes, there is a physical address for a package or envelope to arrive to your location. The HTTP colon slash slash www was the beginning of that address for a particular website on the World Wide Web for you to visit. Exactly. Uh, and of course, when you're talking about a URL, right, you're referring to a, uh, a uniform resource locator. So again, it's, it's something that is um, the same no matter what, everyone can access it. Right. And it points you, like you said, in that direction and sends you there. So. Right. And then more or less right around the time with uh, Tim Berners-Lee, uh, this is where the myth of Al Gore creating the internet <laughs> kind of starts. Because he was a senator at the time, um, and he passes what I believe is called the Gore Bill that uh, gets the public awareness of what the internet can do with the advent of the World Wide Web and passes a bill for more government funding. Uh, and it, it, from the article that I read, it looks like uh, this was 
probably one of the one of the few things that Al Gore is really known for this day and age is that it's kind of shorthanded that he created the internet, which, in fact, no, he did not. Well, I think it, that that whole myth stems from a series of misquotes and, oh, of and things of that nature. Al Gore, I will say, along with several other individuals in Congress, not just yeah. Al Gore, I mean, he was kind of leading the charge, but he couldn't have done it alone. These individuals wanted and saw the potential for the internet and wanted that to be available to everybody. So essentially they made it so that the government no longer had control over it. The government would continue to use it in their own form, but there would be a public version of the internet. This bill, of course, was passed back in 1991, passed into law by uh, George uh, H.W. Bush, Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, uh, in 1992. And that coincides right with uh, Berners-Lee leaving CERN and, you know, essentially kind of going out into the private sector uh, and with that, introducing the World Wide Web to the world for the first time, 1993, huge, pivotal moment where now people could get online, literally get online. And because of all the advances that we've talked about, everything that led them to this moment, people can now have instantaneous communication with each other well, from around the world. Instantaneous in the term of it wouldn't take a day like okay. it used to. Sure. But we're talking about minutes instead of weeks. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so and we're talking about at this point because of the uh, very rapid evolution of the personal computer, both from the Windows platform and the Apple platform. This advent of the World Wide Web would truly be accessible to anyone, thanks to the the birth of the personal computer. Uh, devices that would no longer take up wire uh, warehouses yeah. or buildings in terms of space where you did not have to access multiple levels to get from one place to another, that this was all self-contained in a 20 to 40 pound box with a screen. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that this kind of represents a shift in what we're going to talk about now, right? Because yeah. now we're moving into something that you and I remember. Oh, clearly. Yeah. You know, you and I are old enough to remember the birth of the internet as, and, and well, what in, we in a cultural sense. we refer to as the internet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. At this point. The World Wide Web, let's yes. call it that. You and I remember the birth of that. And Trip Dubs, as I called it as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> you you are one of the silliest people on this planet. Uh, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, I will say, though, that you know the cultural phenomena that is the internet today really started in that moment. Yeah. Um, but the internet, even in 1993, was still a really weird place. Yeah. People were communicating uh, via, like, news groups, right? Which you do not see in great number these days, except for oh, I don't all, think you really all sorts see of other activities. Yeah, but. I don't think you really see it on a personal uh, ins- or consumer level this day and age, rather yeah, than a professional. Yeah, it's kind of become more of like a file share than anything these yeah. days. But, but news groups were the primary way that you communicated with the world at large, you know? Yeah. And they were always the alt-binary dot, and then you had whatever the news group was, right? Right. And that was actually the very first platform that was used to spread the first easily accessible graphic interface-driven web browser, the Mosaic. The Mosaic, that's right. Yeah, Mosaic, uh, which I seriously doubt a lot of people really remember, uh, was very quick. I mean, when they initially said, hey, does anyone want to try this out? They literally had five, or no, excuse me, 15 people kind of say, yeah, sure. And that was their beta test. They, they sent it out <laughs> over Usenet. And people fell in love with it. I mean, this was this was a pivotal moment. And this was, I believe, in 1995 
So now the internet had been around for a little bit. People are finally starting to get used to it. More and more personal yep. computers were showing up in people's houses. And they're becoming more affordable. So again, making this literally uh, accessible to the multitudes. Yeah. And this was something that was released across Windows, Unix, and Macintosh. Yep. So all of the big ones that were out there had access to it immediately. And you find that it changed a lot. It started its development back in 1992, but it didn't really gain in its popularity until around 1995 when it was able to kind of be out there in the world. But a lot of those key elements of a web browser are there. So there's a back and a forward button. That's right. Um, There's even kind of like a little icon that that makes an animation while you're searching, right? So you know that the process is underway. Yep. Um, And you could send not just words, but you could send photos. You could send HTML embedded websites. Yeah. Not just looking at a a series of files and a series of subdirectories and, you know, menus. You were actually... All disorganized and everything, yeah. You were looking at something that was creative. Something that, because tools now existed, like on the Apple platform, where you had this really intuitive GUI or graphic user interface, you had uh, a really graphic kind of driven means by which to use the computer, people were creating really fun and interactive websites. Well, at this point, uh, we we had reached generation one of what's commonly referred to as we have been putting it the World Wide Web. Right now, we're kind of operating in a Web 2.0 version this day and age, but... When it comes to the creation of these websites, it wasn't as widely accessible like it is today, where you have blogs, you have companies that host domain names for you to buy and make on your own, and companies that own servers for you to, again, make your own websites. But the interesting thing was companies at large were starting to create a more interactive experience with a, like you said, an upgraded, more user-friendly GUI, graphical user interface. And... From my memory, the first one that I really remember in terms of a company would be AOL. Uh, AOL being the main platform as a child that I used to access the internet. The main and very first web browser that I remember. Absolutely. I mean, I, everyone knows AOL. Everyone knows the iconic, you have mail, yep. right? But just before that, though, mm-hmm. I think it's worth definitely mentioning Netscape. Yes, yes, please go ahead. And I think that it's also important for people to understand that when uh, Mosaic which eventually would be purchased by Netscape, right? It would become the foundation for the Netscape web browser. There were only 50 websites on the internet. Five, zero. Do you wow. know how many websites there are today? I'm going to say infinity. No, there's an actual number. <laughs> there is an actual number. 637 million, give or take, websites are in existence today. Whoa, whoa. So that's from 1995 to 2013. Not even 20 years. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, pretty incredible growth. And it was because of that moment, because now we had a web browser that was accessible. And when Netscape came on the scene, it changed everything. Because Bill Gates and, you know, even even Steve Jobs, who was at Next to that point, and, uh, you know, you had uh, Steve... um, Ballmer. Ballmer. Yep. You had all these people in the tech industry who were running... Giants, yeah. Yeah, major companies who were creating personal computers. None of them saw the internet as being anything worthwhile. They didn't see any potential behind it. And what does Netscape do? They come out and say, look at this. We got some really cool way that you can connect with people and interact with people and see pictures and do all sorts of cool stuff online. And send electronic mail. Yeah. And the world exploded with it. They loved it. There was one million downloads of the Netscape web browser within just like the first couple of days that it was out or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. And when they went public, 
when they got their IP out there and they ended up on the stock market, yeah. they made so much money. How they they exploded. Yeah. And Steve, uh, not Steve, excuse me, uh, Bill Gates freaked out. Bill <laughs> Gates literally had a hissy fit. And that's when you have Internet Explorer come on the scene. Yep. It's such a sad story because Netscape was this tiny little startup, a handful of kids from college who were funded by Jim Clark, who had brought all of those original you know, elements together, right? He had a, uh, acquired Mosaic. He provided the money. $5 million was his initial investment in the company. Wow, that's a lot of money back then. Yeah, well, yeah, it worked out really well because yeah. after Netscape launched and, and its shares skyrocketed, he made something like $635 million. <laughs> Jeez. And by the time he was done, I think he made something like $2.9 billion just wow. by investing in, in, in Netscape. And they were the talk of the town. Everyone was like, you know, who are these guys? These guys are incredible. Microsoft kind of reached out to them. They shot down Microsoft. They wow. blew off Microsoft. Jeez. Which was, in retrospect, probably not the greatest idea. <laughs> uh, because Windows 95 was about ready to launch. And they had enough time to essentially look at Netscape and say, oh, we can do that. And they pretty much just straight up copied it. Straight up. I they, can't say I'm surprised coming from Windows. Yeah. Internet Explorer 1.0, which shipped free with Windows 95, which was a big difference because, you know, Netscape was being charged for before that, right. which is how they made a lot of their initial revenue. They completely and totally monopolized web browsing. And, you know, you think about it, Internet Explorer, until some of those other ones, like you were mentioning, like AOL came on the scene. Yeah. You didn't really have many other options for web browsing. No, you didn't. And Netscape was down and out within just a couple of years. And right. it's, it's sad because these guys were really creative and had a really great idea. And here comes Microsoft to, you know, blow them off. And of course, you know, Microsoft got in trouble later and Bill Gates was put through, you know, that, that trial where he was really run through the ringer and, and they were actually going to break up Microsoft because of all of this. They huh. were going to treat it like they would any other monopoly and they were essentially going to uh, destroy the company. Well, not destroy it, but they were going to tear it apart into two separate parts. Yeah. Uh, they didn't end up doing that, but um, you know, Bill Gates stepped down as CEO. So, I mean, there were some lasting implications from what they had done. Absolutely. But, wow. Well, during this time, um, AOL did have a very uh, small evolution. Like, it, it technically, it started uh, more or less uh, in about 1985, where it was available on the Commodore 64. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, three years later, it shows up on the Apple II and the Macintosh. And then uh, in that same year, there's a PC link for IBM uh, computers. Right around 91, 93 is when the public, having more access to personal computers, whether it be made by Windows or by Apple, um, they start getting the floppy disks mm -hmm. of AOL available, versions oh, 2.0, 1.0. How many of those did I get in the mail? Oh, they they sent them out like hotcakes, like there was no tomorrow. Like that, it was just like a relentless, relentless... Onslaught. On, yeah, perfect word for yeah. it. Yeah. You're just being inundated with these floppy disks that are falling from the sky. They, yep. had, they had planes that they rented, and they, and they dropped them from <laughs> tiny little parachutes as they fell into your front yard. Uh, and as soon as they landed on your doorstep, you would hear, you've got mail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, it was right around 95, 96, when the advent of having CDs, compact disks, or CD-ROMs, um, starting to show up on computers when AOL very slowly shifted its platform of delivering the service on a monthly fee, or you could also go by hourly, onto a compact disc that you would receive uh, on your doorstep. 
I, I can't imagine how many of those freaking floppy disks and CDs that I got in the mail uh, from AOL. I mean, they were relentless in the way that they were trying to distribute it and get it out there. Absolutely. And, you know, this cost them money, obviously, but they were hoping they would get that back in the subscriptions with AOL. Right. But AOL was bad. AOL yeah. sucked. Yeah, it kind I, of did. My buddy had AOL in, in elementary school, and I remember going to his computer, and I was like, what is wrong with your computer? Why does it look like that? What What is this? And Because yeah. I had been using Netscape, because Netscape, you know, it, it came back, and I, I liked it. I preferred to keep it, and I had a Mac back in the day, right? So uh, it was my Performa 8500, I think, at that time. Ooh, nice. Oh, it was so sweet. Anyway, and that was my go-to web browser. I mean, that's that's what I used. Um, what you find interesting, though, around this time is that people who are now finally getting on the internet were having a little bit of a disconnect, though, right? Because here we had AOL, who was trying to tie everything together, right? You had internet, you had email. And if you wanted to find something, though, on the internet, it was really difficult. It was it was kind of all over the place. And unless you knew where that direct link was, and you followed from kind of one link to the other... You browsing the internet was a really disconnected experience you were hopping from literally from one place to another with no sense of direction yeah you just kind of had to go off of what you were finding if you want to just type in a keyword you couldn't do that no but that's when things kind of changed around the time that yahoo introduced something interesting uh because back in 1994 there was a couple of young uh, grad students this is jerry yang and david philo and these guys created Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Which, thank God, they renamed shortly after Yahoo. Yahoo. <laughs> you know, they broke the world record for yodeling with that. Really? Yeah, they got like over a thousand people together for one of their commercials. And oh, they, they wow. broke the world record for... I don't know if, the, if it still stands, but I thought that was totally pointless yet worth mentioning. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will say, though, that... Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web was a really interesting attempt at making the internet finally make sense. All the pieces were in place now. Now the f- puzzle was finally coming together. You could see the image, right, just at a distance, you know. There was a couple missing pieces here and there, but you could finally see it. And it was painstaking at first, because essentially what they did is they scoured the internet for web pages, they created a index and directory for them, and then they assigned keywords manually to each Whoa, and every single website. Jeez, that must have taken forever. Well, obviously they they didn't have the entire internet catalog, but they right. but they spent thousands of hours right. going this is through. Still, this is still the nineties. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, this but, is still the mid nineties. Right. This is ninety four, ninety five, and it it wouldn't be until much later that you actually had a whole new kind of revolution in in, in the way that web searches would work. Right. But Leading up to that point, that's what all these early web search engines had to do. You know, Yahoo was pivotal in starting that, but obviously AOL kind of kicked over, and then yep. you had the AOL keyword searches. Remember that? Yeah, that was kind of built do. into the AOL web browser thing. They, yeah, that's right. They had they were the first browser to build in a search engine. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. exactly right. But you had this disconnect because I could be on my computer using Yahoo, and you could be on yours using AOL, and we search for the same thing and get completely different yeah, results. It, it was very convoluted. Yeah, but luckily there was not that many websites. At this time, in the early to mid-90s, right. whereas Jump for, uh, had like 10 years, 
Not even. It's sure. there's like hundreds of thousands. Whole different ballgame. Yeah. But you had more people becoming comfortable with the internet, designing web pages. So you, it was an ongoing process that was getting out of control. How would you make money off of this whole process, though? Because remember, Yahoo did really, really well in the early 90s. Yeah. How do you think they made their money? Well, because we AOL had, yeah, exactly. AOL yeah. had subscriptions. That's right. But Yahoo had advertisements. That's right. Uh, both like television, radio, and literally on the on their search engine websites as well. Yeah. So they had tons and tons of stuff where people were putting up ads on their website. And at first, they were scared. They didn't want to do it. They didn't think that it would take off. Because here they had this great idea for a search engine, but the venture capitalists who wanted to invest in them said, if you don't put advertising on, you're wasting an opportunity and we're not going to give you any extra money. So they put up the first banners. Web banners, wow. And the very first web banner, uh, you know what it said? Huh. It said, have you ever clicked your mouse right here? And there was a big arrow pointing at, you will. And sure enough, people did. Oh my god! They literally (laughs) gave them, you know, incentive to do it by telling them to do it. And people did it because they'd never done it before. And there weren't ads like that before uh, either. But it was genius because if you think about that first ad... Now, every time they see something like that, they're going to want to click on it because that first ad took them somewhere interesting. Yeah. Now they're more or less ignored. <laughs> oh. And has gotten out of control. Oh, I mean, yeah. even at that time, they went insane. And by they, I mean all these different web browsers, right? So AltaVista. Yep. Uh, obviously, you know, Yahoo and AOL, like we talked about, and right. Internet all Explorer. the other ones that are out there. Yeah. Uh, until companies started doing something different. And this brings us to Google. Google really is something amazing. Because in 1999, I remember having a conversation with my sister's then boyfriend. And he had mentioned which web browser or uh, search engine that I I used most often. And I told him that I I used AltaVista. I liked it because it had the Babelfish translator. You know, I was still pretty young. I I was like the last year of middle school. So, you know, you go on there and and translate nasty and obscene things into other languages because that's what you did when you were 14. But... (laughs) You had, uh, I told him about that, and he's like, oh, have you heard of Google? I'm hmm. like, what the hell's a goggle? And he says, no, 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 Google. And I said, no, I've never seen it. He says, let me show you this. So I went over to his computer, and he said, type in something that you want to look about. So I probably typed in something like Star Trek. Star I don't, Trek, I don't yeah. remember what I did, but <laughs> it was probably on. Star Trek. It was probably Star Trek or Egypt, one of those things. <laughs> and it organized the searches based on how many people had clicked on that link previously or had linked to that from a previous or from a different page. So huh. it did something different. It, it had an algorithm built into it that scanned the internet for all those different links and clicks. And what it did was it gave you something useful. You know, it wasn't just being populated by people who were assigning keywords to it. Now you're actually going through and you were finding something that the relevant Another, searches were at top. Right. It's yeah. a, a new search uh, ability. Yeah. Instead of just searching by keywords, now you can search by popularity. Exactly. And, you know, what this did for Google was essentially get them on the on the right track. But I still remember after a couple of years of Googling, I, I, I was still finding people that didn't know anything about Google. So I was kind of a Google spokesman in a way. I was kind of sharing it with people and, and telling yeah. them about it for the first time. Yeah. And in the early 2000s, that's when people started putting money into Google. People started investing into Google. And you respected it, though. Yeah. Because you respected it because it wasn't like it was vomited all over by by an advertising company. <laughs> you know, it, it it was clean, had a very simple interface, and everyone thought, well, how could they possibly make money off of this if they don't embrace advertising? But that's when the elegance of it all came together, because you were clicking on links that you didn't even realize 
were or paid links. Yeah, that's right. They were over on the side, so they were not technically part of your main your, search window. Exactly, right? So they weren't invasive, but they were there. And you just clicked on them because in some ways they may have actually connected with what you were interested in. And that has brought Google to where it is now, where their stock is over $1,000 a share. As of today, yeah. Which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. The billions of dollars that, that Google is worth today all started with a simple and elegant design idea for a web browser's search engine. Yeah. One invention that we all take advantage of today, whether on a mobile platform or a, a physical personal computer, was that right around 2000 as well, the uh, invention of the toolbar uh, search uh, for a web browser was also invented. Uh, mostly, uh, it was a plugin on the browser that you could install, uh, and Google was actually the first one, as far as my research has shown. Um, and that was just in the year 2000, which is pretty impressive because you look at anybody on a computer, uh, some people, uh, I've noticed, depending on their age, will go either A, to the website, google.com, yahoo.com, etc., etc., or depending on what you have built into your web browser, um, whether it be Google, Bing, or Yahoo, uh, now you can just type in what you're looking for in terms of uh, the search, and it will directly take you to the results as if you were at the Google page. Yeah. I mean, that, that is... That was just in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. And look at where we are now, though. Yeah. I mean, look at the internet as we know it, right? The World Wide Web as it was created and introduced into our lives. You think about the telephone. Telephone's been around for what? 130, almost 140 years, something like that. Like at least 130 okay. years. All right. You think about the time that the telephone was introduced just up to the very start of the 20th century and look at the same span of time where the internet has evolved in just that Leaps short amount of time. Leaps and bounds faster. It's evolved faster than the telephone has in the past 130 years. Right. It took almost it took uh, almost 100 years for it to become wireless. Yeah. For crying out loud. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, it is absolutely incredible. And we have to talk about the extreme cultural impact of this. Because I can meet up with somebody that I have never known in my entire life, would never have had any opportunity to know because they live so far away from here. They live such in a detached community, like way out in a rural area, who because of modern technology have access to the internet. And we can communicate in seconds. Yeah. And you think about the, the greatest inventions... In human history, I mean, the internet has to be one of them. It has to be. Right next to the wheel and yeah. sliced bread. No, exactly, right? <laughs> I, I mean, you, you think about where we were 100 years ago, and if I wanted to learn something, if I wanted to have some knowledge stuck in my brain, I'd have to go to either a library or I'd have to go to a school that provided a, a good education. Right. Or a craft shop. Yeah. I may not even have had the ability to read, you know, even believe it right. or not, 1920s America, there were a lot of people who were illiterate. Right. So uh, not to mention places all around the world where that was true. Just the fact now that I can go online, type in any keyword, and I can learn about something yeah. is incredible. And I think it has fundamentally changed you and I's generation. Oh, completely. I, yeah. I feel like younger folks, so, you know, 35 and younger 40 and younger who have had access to the internet since they were in their youth. I, you know, I might just be kind of generalizing here and I, I don't want to do that, but I, I kind of feel like we have the opportunity to be so much more open-minded than the previous generations. Right. And I feel like as a whole, many of us are. Oh yeah. Because we, we are no longer stuck in our own little worlds. 
we can see the entire world for what it is. We can understand more about yeah. what what the rest of the world can offer. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it really is absolutely incredible. Like uh, I remember as a kid uh, when we were assigned a research project in school. Um, we would use the school library, and sometimes we'd have to go to the public library. And that research would take hours and days and sometimes weeks. Now, if you ask a, a child, I need you to do the research of, let's say, the invention of the telephone. It will literally take them minutes, if not seconds, to get to a legitimate source Yeah. in order to get all of the data they need and present it. Like, like that. Kids have it so easy this day and age, especially when it comes to uh, school research projects and things like that. I remember the days of using a library, and I remember it taking a long time and being frustrated by memorizing the Dewey Decimal System and stuff like that, <laughs> because I uh, I wanted to go outside and play instead. <laughs> and now kids have the opportunity to do that because of the internet, because of the World Wide Web, because of search engines. They can all do this stuff in a matter of moments rather than a matter of days, weeks, months, or God forbid, years. Yeah. And you can stay connected with people. You can make connections with people. Right. There's two members of my family. I won't be too specific with who they are, but they met each other through a dating website Aww. and they are now married Aww. and they love each other dearly. So stuff like that is happening each and every moment oh, yeah. because of the internet. And it's just getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, before we finish up, because I think we've kind of reached the the apex of, of what we're talking about here, right. I did want to share some really interesting factoids that I found on this article on uh, inscribed.com. Okay. Uh, it's titled 21 Amazing Facts About the Internet, and they have some... Um, Ooh. They have some uh, resources that they've 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 cited on there as well. Nice. Um, and uh, I want to share a couple of those on here that I found most interesting. Please do. So, uh, according to this article, uh, Google estimated in 2010 that the internet was approximately five million terabytes in size. Sixty-one percent of that was from videos. Whoa! And even though Google has the largest internet uh, index of any company out there, they claim anyhow to have scanned only. 0.004% of the total internet. Whoa. So when they come up with millions of search results, mm -hmm. if you type in something simple like Monty Python. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Imagine everything else that's out there that they don't even connect with that right. has been out there for so long. That's kind of like uh, the Hubble telescope is only able to look at, was it 0.0000015% of the sky? Yeah. In outer space. Yeah. Yeah. Or something exactly. along those lines. Isn't that crazy, though? Yeah. And that's something that we just created a few years ago. Vast. That's just vast, man. Uh, let's see here. Uh, there are approximately 4,200 new domain names registered every hour or around 37 million Whoa. per year. Jeez. And I'm just reading this verbatim off of the, off the website here. Uh, Facebook has an estimated 1.2 billion active users. So that's, what, about one-sixth or one-seventh of the world's population? Yeah, we're about six, seven billion people in, yeah. That's insane. Yeah, there's seven billion people on the planet, so that's like... Wait, oh, it says here on the website, 17% of humans Jeez. are on Facebook. Jeez. And some of those are cats. Let's just say... <laughs> I would I would even go as far to say that uh, like 0.5% of those are, are, cats. are cats and dogs. Right. Um, but that's absolutely incredible. Let's see here. Oh, you know, and we didn't mention his name, and I'm glad that it brings it up in the article because yeah. I wanted to say it. So uh -huh. that first email that was sent, yeah, uh, that was by Ray Tomlinson. So I, I just wanted to throw his name out there. He was the the father of the at symbol being married 
to uh, to your emails, so mm-hmm. you can you can thank them for that. And there's about 250 billion of those emails that are sent every single day. 250 yeah. billion? Yeah, but guess how much of that spam? Spam, 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 spam. <laughs> um, I'm gonna guess a good 75 percent. Very close, 81 percent approximately. Oh. Uh, but oh. only about six percent of those are ever opened. <laughs> wow! What a waste of time. Jeez, what a waste of like storage capacity and just ugh and what a who, waste. whoever married the name spam to spam mail because you know what i'm a big fan of hawaiian cuisine and <laughs> i don't care what people say spam is delicious i still haven't tried it yet i i might have to have you prepare it then because if you like spam and you prepare it in a way that you enjoy it i think i would too spam and eggs that's just that's just good that is just good <laughs> <laughs> all right if so you say should, so you should not be married to spam mail i'm sorry well, then like what that. else would you... Oh, junk mail. <laughs> so, now get this. An estimated 65% of Americans watch TV and use the internet simultaneously. Oh, I'm definitely in that percentile. Of course you are. I, I am, too. Yeah. yeah that, that's true. Yeah. I okay. Actually, to be honest, to me, in terms of d- the developed world that has access to the internet and television, what was that percentage again? Uh, that was 65% of Americans. That sounds too low. I think it should be something close to 80%. Only because well, everyone I interact with, almost everyone I interact with uh, that is within 30 to 40 years of age with me, they do the same thing, whether on their smartphones, their tablets, on their yeah, laptops, or their desktops. I think that's probably desktops. 65% of the American population, because everyone else is like my parents who don't own a smartphone, but have computers, but web browsed while not watching TV. Okay. Well, I'm talking in my in my eyes being, okay. you know, a twenty something. I'm sorry, no, you cannot you cannot argue this. All it, right. it is a fact. All right. I read it. Okay. On the internet. Therefore oh, it must be real. That's right. The most <laughs> reputable place in the world. Forget libraries. The internet's where it's at. <laughs> the very first webcam was deployed at Cambridge University and it uh, was watching a coffee pot. Make coffee. No. Yep. Really? Yep. It wasn't like someone picking their nose or a cat just going, mew, 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 mew. Nope. Like, just a coffee. Coffee pot. Coffee pot. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned cats, however, because it's estimated that 80% of all images <laughs> on the internet... <laughs> are made up of cats. No, only 20% of those are cats. Oh, okay. 80% are of naked women. Oh. Uh, yeah. Wow, 80%? Yeah, so the remaining 20% are cats. <laughs> uh, which actually brings up a, a somewhat funny joke. Uh, there is this wonderful play called Avenue Q uh, out there, dear listeners. If you are at least 18 years or older, um, or if you're anywhere closer to Eric and my age, this is a play that can be described as an adult Sesame Street. And I was very uh, fortunate to see it live uh, performed in Los Angeles. And th- one of their best songs is sung by a uh, a puppet uh, that kind of looks and sounds like Cookie Monster, and the song is called The Internet is for Porn. Now, I will not speak verbatim any of the lines of that song because they are Please very don't, inappropriate. Please don't, because we're not generally an explicit podcast. No. And we don't want to get pulled down from the iTunes store. Not at all. But to give you an idea of what it could sound like, <clears throat> The Internet is for Porn. That's that's the chorus, and that's like Cookie Monster saying it. And I, I laughed so hard when I saw this uh, that I had to step aside and go get some water. My face was bright, bright red. Well, you know, the sad truth is it is. Uh, yeah, a <laughs> lot mean, of the internet, unfortunately, is taken up by porn. Uh, approximately one-third of internet searches that are performed 
are for pornography. Oh, that's not to say that one third of the internet is porn. No, but, but it is searches. to say, yeah, that, that that's what there a lot of people are using. There are better things to do on the internet, like take pictures of your cats. Yeah, exactly. Or like talk I said, to the people other twenty percent is cats. Yeah, to, or talk to people in Australia or Ireland. <laughs> now, I have one last little factoid from this that I thought was interesting. Yeah. Not the first, but what is suspected to be one of the very first websites ever to go up, which, of course, was put out by CERN, right? Because, yeah. you know, they helped lead the whole creation of the World Wide Web, mm-hmm. was uh, www.info.cern.ch. Okay. And even though originally the website was taken down and lost for many, many years, there was a picture that was taken of it, and apparently somebody has recreated it, and it now is hosted again um, live online. So if you want to visit the very first website, so to speak, you can go to this now if you if you go back to that web browser or to the um, domain that I just gave you. Again, that's info.cern.ch. And even though it's not technically the original, you can see exactly what it would have been. It's recreating it. Yeah, it's recreating the original, and it's, uh, you know, it's impressive. There's lots of white on the background. Um, (laughs) There's several several lovely links. Ooh, links. Um, Yeah, you can check it out if you want. So, Kevin. Yes. This has been really interesting. It has. Uh, I mean, considering how vast the internet is, uh, we've probably only covered point zero 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 one five or four <laughs> yeah, percent exactly. of what the internet is all about um but we want to make this entertaining and interesting for all of you uh, out there because we could bog you down with facts but i don't know if that would be as interesting yeah i'm, I'm glad we we kind of took it the way we did because yeah. obviously we had to lay a foundation for it but i think that the internet is a cultural phenomenon it needs to be really spoken about in that way yeah and obviously there is so much that has been written on the subject um and there's more to talk about like um mobile platforms uh meaning accessing the internet on laptops and on smartphones yeah i mean we didn't even get into social media really we didn't talk about the significance of that uh but i will tell you to go to our facebook page hey there's italian right uh Uh, yeah of course ladies and gentlemen if you want to interact with us at nerdonomy you can do that now and thanks to the internet thanks to the internet you can go to our facebook page you can also reach us on twitter you can reach me at the brickmont and you can reach me at the satorius you stole my V. No, I didn't. I'll never forgive you. Well, see, it was an accident because I totally forgot you were the Brickmont and I wanted to be the only Satorius on Twitter, like the Satorius. You know what? Y- you are the Satorius. I well, apologize. <laughs> I apologize. My th- three brothers, parents, cousins, grandmother, aunts and uncles probably don't agree with you. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you got a, your own theme song and you're on a podcast. So that Very makes true. you the Satorius. Well, thank you. Uh, you can also reach us at our uh, respective emails, uh, Kevin at nerdonomy.com. And I am the Brickmont at nerdonomy.com. <laughs> Beat you on that one. Yes, you did. Um, and, you know, ladies and gentlemen, share your thoughts. Tell us about the first time that you went on the internet. Tell yeah. us about. Did you get AOL discs as well? <laughs> yeah. What did you do with them? Did you put them in the microwave and watch them go sparky, sparky, spark? Or, more interesting, at least for me, what was the first computer you used to access the internet? Ooh, okay. Yeah, like that'll, that. that'll take you back. And and as a disclaimer, don't put CDs in the microwave. That's a really bad idea. No, you very will bad set idea. your microwave on Unsafe. fire. Yeah, don't do that. I should never mention that. But no. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> most people are like, what's a compact disc? Yeah, I'm sorry. What's a CD? Yeah, all our younger crowd is like, what the hell are they Is talking it those about? flat circular things that have a hole in the middle? Yeah. No, we're not talking about donuts. <laughs> <laughs> you can put those in the microwave. They don't taste yes. good, but you can. Actually, if you put it in for about five seconds and wrap it in a paper towel, it'll be like a hot, fresh donut. 
I bet you learned that on the internet. Guess what? You're right. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yay! <laughs> But uh, this has been a wonderful topic, and as yeah. Kevin said, we only covered zero point zero zero zero. We haven't even covered a percentage. Yeah, um, <laughs> a so full percentage. I, I'm sure we'll return to it in some form or another. But uh, Kevin, I want to again just thank you so much for coming on the yeah, podcast. Of course, today. I was very happy to. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, of course, ladies and gentlemen, stay nerdy and tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye bye. Peace. That was a good episode, dude. That came together really well. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Oh, hey, look. The uh, the article updated online. Oh, I forgot to close it. And what hey, does it say? There's an update link. Let's see. Whoa, dude. The recently captured American tourist that accidentally fell in the Pope's man cave has escaped. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Wait, scroll down. Let me see how I did see. it. Let's see. Oh, check oh, this out. Nice. It says here that he used a hairpin from B. Arthur's costume to pick the lock and a pair of roller skates that Betty White had to evade police. Wow. Yeah, that, was apparently, a, that was a smart idea. Yeah, apparently Vatican Guard was hindered by their puffy pants and use of pole arms instead of guns. Huh. Hmm. Huh.